to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutil. In 2021, Canada will be observing the 50th anniversary of its policy on multiculturalism. I say Canada with some hesitations. The government of Canada might make a fuss, and perhaps some of its most convinced adherents in Toronto and Montreal may also, but I struggle in believing that most Canadians will give it any more than a passing thought and either smile or shrug their shoulders. Don Forbes, Professor Emeritus in Political Science at the University of Toronto, has just released Multiculturalism in Canada, Constructing a Model Multiculture with Multicultural Values, a book published by Paul Grave Macmillan. I reached him at his office in Goderich, Ontario. Don Forbes, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here and to be talking to Canadians about my recent book. Don, you're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Take me back to October 1971, when the Pierre Trudeau government announced its policy on multiculturalism. You were a young professor then uh, at the University of Toronto. What was your reaction? Uh, well, a, a certain uh, puzzlement, but uh, interest. Uh, I was teaching Canadian politics, Canadian um, public opinion, forgotten exactly what courses I was teaching then, but uh, it, it didn't get a whole lot of attention at the time, but I, I was interested in it from the beginning because it uh, related to the thing that was then of most interest to me, which was the, uh, as so many other Canadians and social scientists, political scientists, uh, the relations between English and French Canada. And uh, it, uh, it was a byproduct of the bilingualism and biculturalism Commission, which had been set up in 1963, I think, and uh, had provoked a reaction from um, minority ethnic groups that it, that the concept of biculturalism misrepresented the country and it, it, it should be rather thought of as a multicultural country. So what do you think were the intentions of the Trudeau government in, in releasing this, this policy? Was it a matter of, of reacting to the emerging multicultural nature of Canada, or was it, uh, or was it simply a, a cynical, well, I shouldn't say cynical, but a, a political, a political move? What, 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 how do you think, what were the intentions of the Trudeau government, do you think? Well, I think, uh, I think it was in part a reaction to the, uh, to the protest that uh, had uh, developed against the, the um, notion of a bicultural Canada. There was a lot of to talk about uh, two nations in those days, and um, and the government was reacting to that. To they, it was specifically reacting to the final report or volume four of the final report of the uh, B and B Commission, which had been about the cultural contributions of the other ethnic groups, and um, but I think it was also, and that's what I try and and. Uh, draw attention to in the book, uh, part of a longer term vision that, that Pierre Trudeau had for Canada's role in the world. So it was both a, a response to an immediate political exigency uh, and a, uh, uh, the first step in uh, implementing a, uh, a broad policy for the development of Canada, a new national policy in a sense. So what was the policy? on multiculturalism in 1971. What did it commit the government to doing? It, it committed the government to doing very little. I mean, it, it, uh, it was not 
uh, a policy adopted as the result of legislation. It was rather just a policy initiated by a statement in Parliament by the Prime Minister responding to, as I say, I said, um, the last, uh, the final volume of the final report of the BNB Commission. And um, uh, what he said was Canada is uh, a multicultural country. Uh, the government will take that into account. It will develop programs for the support of the uh, minority cultures, not just the English and French cultures. And uh, the responsibility for the development of these programs will be given to the uh, Department of... Uh, there was a Secretary of State for multicultural... Secretary of State, yeah. Um, that's, that's the department that took the responsibility for it initially. It did in part trigger expenditures. It was a, a, a bold statement at the time. You, do you, you see this as a call for a better society in Canada on, on behalf of the Trudeau government? Was it, a, was it a call for a better society? Is that how you see it? You bring out an important point that nobody else was doing this in the world. Well, that's an, that, that is yes. Yes and no. No one else was doing it in the world. And uh, thus, you know, and, and to elaborate on that point, you could say the Australians who were facing similar problems, culturally diverse immigrant population and arrest of uh, indigenous population. Um, they took notice, and uh, a couple of years later, they adopted a multiculturalism policy and explicitly attributed it, it to Canada. Whether other countries, yeah, other countries didn't have a multiculturalism policy, but our big next door neighbor, the United States, for a long time had been uh, grappling with the same uh, problems as the multiculturalism policy was addressing and uh, had developed many of the same practical policies without putting the label multiculturalism on them. And, and it, is, it is telling, isn't it? But we'll come back to that uh, in, in a few minutes. I want to keep with the evolution of the Canadian government's um, thinking and the Canadian government's policymaking on this, uh, on this topic. Ten years after the multiculturalism policy is announced in 71, uh, ten years later, we have a stipulation in the new Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And I want to read it precisely because I think every word count, counts here. This is Section 27 of the Charter of Rights and Freedom, and it says, This charter shall be interpreted in a manner consistent with the preservation and enhancement of the multicultural heritage of Canada. How, how did you read? How did you how do you read that that uh, stipulation in the charter? Um, uh, the idea of preserving and enhancing, I think, is contentious, and the notion of a multicultural heritage, I think, is important. How did you un, how do you unpack that very dense little stipulation? Well, the the, the government is uh, taking or should take responsibility. It's a constitutional obligation for the government to uh, pursue policies that will uh, maintain and enhance the heritage of the different heritages, plural, of the different cultural groups in Canada. But what does that mean? Well, they, were already, they already had a variety of policies in that area to support 
uh, cultural groups to uh, allow broadcasting, for example, in, in languages other than English and French and so on. And, and uh, there were a variety of specific policies that you could say were the overall multiculturalism policy. Is it your sense that the stipulation inside the Charter of Rights and Freedoms didn't really make much difference, that the provincial governments who are also being uh, called to support this this policy uh, were already doing an awful lot in terms of preserving and enhancing multiculturalism? Well, some of them were and others uh, not so much. But, for example, Alberta adopted a formal statement about multiculturalism some months before Trudeau's statement in October 1971. Uh, but what, but the, I think the significance of, the, of that Section 27 is that it, it constitutionalizes the idea of a, of a diverse uh, multicultural people in Canada. But it, practically speaking, it has had very little effect on what governments do or on how courts decide cases. It's rarely been cited in, in uh, judgments of the Supreme Court. And as far as I know, in no major case has it been cited as a crucial consideration in the decisions that they've come to. That's very that's very important to, to underline, I think, on this 50th anniversary. Now, your book also talks about the application of Brian Mulroney's law uh, in 1988, again reaffirming multicultural heritage of, of Canadians or the multiculturalism policy. Um, how do you react to that? Well, again, that, I think that's less significant, from at least from the point of view that I'm developing in the book, the uh, analysis that I provide, less significant than Trudeau's statement in 1971. And uh, I, I quote from uh, Peter Russell, who's, who uh, this big book on uh, incomplete conquest, uh, where he he just dismisses it as of no significance whatsoever because it didn't obligate anyone to do anything specific. Well, it's not that's not quite right. It does obligate the uh, some civil servants to um, supply reports to Parliament about what they've done in the previous year, but there's it, it's not much more substantial than that. Although it it was of great you could say symbolic significance and, and the various interest groups have pressed hard for such a, a law because it, it puts into the law books a statement about multiculturalism, whereas Trudeau's 1971 statement, which I think was very significant, um, was just a statement in Parliament in response to a, a Royal Commission's report. Again, looking back over 50 years, how can we measure... Uh, this policy of multiculturalism against the objectives of things that you raise in your book, uh, equality, freedom, recognition, authenticity, openness. Would these objectives, could these objectives be reached without a policy of multiculturalism? Or did the policy of multiculturalism really accelerate uh, the meeting of those objectives. Well, I think what it, 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 rather the effect was it transformed our understanding of what those um, words mean, and that's uh, that's at the heart of my book is is an analysis of how the meaning of those words has changed. Equality, for example, had, um, the previous political history had featured a controversy between socialism and liberalism, right, or capitalism, equality of of opportunity 
the liberal conception, equality of results, the socialist conception. Well, uh, implicitly that was for individuals. Equality of results, every individual being more or less equal in, in, in income. Equality of opportunity, every individual having more or less the same formal opportunities. Well, it's, it's uh, the understanding of equality has been transformed, I would submit, and I, I think uh, you see it if you just read the newspapers these days, into equality um, of results for groups on the average. So is 50, are 50% 50 of the CEOs women? If um, German Canadian, well, that, that's a preposterous example maybe, but if black Canadians are 1% of the population, are they 1% of the CEOs and so on? So it's become a, a, a concept that has to do with the representation of groups in positions of privilege. And uh, that allows, um, uh, uh, it, it, it uh, requires inequality of opportunity, affirmative action programs of various kinds, and it has no concern with equality of results on the individual basis. If, if uh, a group that's 10% of the population has 10% of the billionaires, this, the notion of equality, the relevant notion of equality is satisfied. It doesn't require that the billionaires share any of their billions with uh, the impoverished. But on the other hand, uh, it, I mean, if, if you're going to, if society is going to adopt quotas like that, it surely will undermine the freedom of others to become billionaires, would it not? Oh, yes. <laughs> That's, there's, uh, uh, and we see that all over. So there's a tension there. Mm, there's a lot of tension. What, what about um, freedom or, or recognition, the, these other concepts that you've, that you've identified? Um, do you see the multiculturalism policy undermining those or promoting those? You know, the, the most uh, obscure and now uh, questions have to do with freedom, I think. It's a very difficult concept to understand what it means. Practically speaking, I think before recent times, it meant uh, for us in the West, um, uh, a government that didn't supervise individual behavior as closely as governments in the past had done. So you, it was more individual freedom, more... Uh, uh, ability to uh, live your life as you wanted without uh, interference from neighbors or the government. And to the extent that such interference was required, it was imposed by law. And that law was, uh, in principle, adopted by a majority of people in the society. It was adopted democratically. So it you know, one you the, the you can call one of those freedoms positive and the other negative. Uh, the the usage is pretty loose, but it was a matter of, of balancing uh, positive and negative liberty. One of Canada's most famous uh, academics is a guy by the name of Will Kimlicka at at uh, Queens, who's written extensively on the relation between multiculturalism and freedom. And my argument is that um, he has, in effect, transformed it to suit the, our understanding of it, to suit the requirements of multiculturalism. And, and he's done that effectively by 
uh, arguing that uh, government intervention in the uh, management of social relations is a uh, precondition for freedom, and the uh, management is uh, is applied through the human rights commissions. What about issues like authenticity? Is it a, is it possible to achieve authenticity when it seems as though uh, recognition from government is the most important measure of success? I mean, how, how do you? How do you evaluate the, the objective of authenticity? What do you mean by it? And, and how does it respond? Well, that's a, that was the, the term that gave me the greatest difficulty, authenticity. It's, it's at the heart of, of um, Charles Taylor's contributions in this area. He's written, uh, he wrote a famous article um, on, um, or gave a famous lecture. It became an article and there were articles innumerable articles written about it. The Politics of Recognition was the title. And, uh, and the two key concepts in his presentation of uh, the argument for multiculturalism were recognition and authenticity. His, uh, and I think he was, he was absolutely right that, that the politics of multiculturalism is the politics of recognition. It's a politics of, of uh, competition for, to put it crudely, status, uh, or more euphemistically, recognition. And, uh, but that's at odds with authenticity. If you're depending upon other people for your, to recognize you, for your definition of yourself, you become their slave in a sense. How do you square the pursuit of recognition, the pursuit of status or, or um, popularity or uh, willingness to accept the, the demands of conformity? That's the tension. And uh, authenticity is the concept that balances, so to speak, recognition in Taylor's presentation. But it, I, I think it's a, it's a doesn't work. Put it crudely. <laughs> it doesn't work. Well, so it, that brings me to your subtitle. The subtitle of your book is Constructing a Model Multiculture. What, what do you mean by that? And are you, are you saying that Canada's policy of multiculturalism is actually undermining the ability to construct a model multiculture? No, 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 not at all. I don't think so. I mean, I think in some ways Canada has uh, constructed a model multiculture. Um, um, uh, and has used uh, various uh, tools of government to do so. Human rights commissions, the charter and court decisions, and the, and the way in which that has has, um, you know, in effect, a, a lot of legislation has been passed to the Supreme Court and to other high courts. And, um, and then the immigration policy, which is the fundamental policy, it seems to me, in constructing a multicultural society. You've got to have people who come from different sources, who have different national backgrounds, different religions, different races. Um, and then the trick is to mold them into a common uh, culture, uh, a society with some common norms. Do you see any weaknesses then to Canada's multicultural policy? 
Well, that, that the tensions within such a diverse population are the weakness. We tell ourselves that diversity is our strength. Uh, it occurred to me a few days ago that I should write a short book called Detroit, <laughs> colon, diversity is our strength. What do you think is lost then in this pursuit of multiculturalism? Is it authenticity? I think, yeah, it demands diplomacy rather than authenticity. And what is the danger there that... Uh, People don't have that that ability to be diplomatic, or, or is it something that you think is is in danger? No, I, well, I think some people do, obviously, and, and a lot of people, a lot of Canadians are pretty diplomatic. I think you know that Canadians are famous for being polite, right? And uh, you know, not as as abrasive as some other people, as not as as uh, you know, some would say. Their their uh, their politeness. Another word for it would be they're boring or they're they're uh, non-confrontational. They're uh, they don't speak their minds. But they're hemmed in by government pronouncements. They are not authentic. They're hemmed in by government uh, suggestions. By government pronouncements or by government laws, suggestions. Yeah, it's to some extent by laws. Although it's more a matter of a, a development, it seems to me, in my experience, the development of a polite and cautious culture. A new ethos. Uh, yeah, exactly. A new ethos. Yes, ethos is a key word. What about, uh, well, let's unpack this a little bit further. What is the place of First Nations in all this? Is it, does, it, does, it, does it separate itself? Is that a completely different part or... How do you how do you see that? I see that as a the third rail that's that you've got to be careful if you're getting anywhere near it, and and in any discussion of multiculturalism you are getting near it because it is a distinct ethnic and cultural and racial group within the country with uh, serious demands that aren't just about symbols but about land claims and uh, reparations and uh, so on. It's its own recognition in the, in the Charter of Rights. Oh, yes. Uh, with a major ambition of Pierre Trudeau's to put the relations between um, the Canadian immigrant communities or settler communities and the indigenous peoples on a, a better footing than it had been before, in the, you know, prior to the, the 1970s. And uh, he and, and Jean Chrétien conceived a, a white paper um, that uh, was to be the first, the opening uh, move in, in uh, developing such a policy. And it was repudiated and abandoned. And then Trudeau effectively did nothing after that. But the various problems festered in the background. And now his son, it seems to me, came into office hoping to make Aboriginal reconciliation his great achievement. But he too seems to be turning away from it as, as the problems are just intractable. But they certainly are related to questions of authenticity, recognition, freedom, equality, and multiculturalism. I wonder if we could sort of helicopter up a little bit and, and, and talk about multiculturalism a little bit in an international context. Uh, many European thinkers and political leaders 
have emphatically declared that multiculturalism was a failure in their own countries. Uh, I've heard many, uh, an intellectual French, British, German say that Canada was hardly an example to follow, that Canada's pursuit of multiculturalism had essentially gutted it, gutted its, uh, its, its uh, ability to identify itself as distinctive. Um, what's your reaction to the, to the European perception of multiculturalism as a failure? Well, I think it's part of, I mean, uh, it just occurred to me to say it's part of its success. It's given Canadians a distinctive identity and that other people don't like it. What's new about that? Did the French ever like the German identity or the Germans the French? Americans Americans remain a puzzle, don't they? <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> what, what, the Ameri what the Europeans mean when they say that multiculturalism has been a failure, I think, is that they don't want a diverse population. They don't want... The, they can see that there are problems when large numbers of Poles move to Britain or when North Africans move to France or when Syrians move to Germany or Turks. And they don't want that, those problems. And they don't think that, that, that uh, Canada has developed any policies, quote unquote, that overcome those problems, short of transforming your national identity, thinking of yourself no longer as German, but as a model multicultural um, leading the world towards uh, a multicultural future. And they don't want to do that. They, they can't persuade their citizens to do that. It's just, the, the, the citizens just reject it. Is this because we, we don't have the deep roots the Europeans have in terms of a solid identity? Is it, in other words, the, the um, ability of, of newer, quote-unquote, settler societies, such as Canada or Australia, New Zealand, even the United States, uh, is it more likely to work in our countries and our newer societies simply because we are newer, um, that we don't have a, a history that goes back thousands of years? Yes, I think so. And we have, uh, I think, a greater sense of, of uh, the, uh, the uh, positives of population growth. Uh, you know, a lot of people's support for multiculturalism is, in effect, a support for an immigration, an immigration policy. And Canada's level of immigration is not the highest in the world, despite what's sometimes said. But it is, it is relatively high, higher than the United States uh, on a per capita basis. And uh, there are a lot of, of uh, people who benefit from a high level of immigration. The ethnic communities like to see more of their own uh, people here. They want to bring their relatives to Canada. Uh, the employers of, of labor, generally speaking, like uh, additions to the labor market. It tends to lower wages. Uh, the, uh, the banks and other service providers see opportunities uh, luring new citizens to their into their through their doors so they 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 uh, make an effort to be friendly and multicultural and so on and there's some people who just dream about Canada being a great power I think uh, by uh, quickly 
increasing its population. There's what I think of as the 100 million club. Yes, I hear that every now and then. I want to circle back to the Americans and their great reticence to recognize anything like multiculturalism. It seems to me as though the American elite is very much governed by the notion that the American story is a story, despite all its difficulties, a story of one nation, um, that there is one American story with various with various dimensions, but that the notion of multiculturalism would necessarily entail multiple allegiances. And somehow we have not cottoned to that notion. Um, what's your interpretation of the American uh, stance towards multiculturalism? Because the Americans, I mean, you go to any American city, you, you mentioned Detroit earlier, but any Amer large American city is just as multicultural uh, as, as Toronto or Montreal or Vancouver or Calgary. Uh, they live multiculturalism, but they don't want to recognize it. What do you think is the American rationale? Well, it's just what you said. I think that they, they fear that, that fostering distinct identities would mean fostering distinct identities with, with respect to foreign policy and, and uh, military policy. And that it would aggravate the problem that, that they, they had and uh, have and will presumably continue to have of, of um, uh, maintaining support for interventions in various parts of the world where, um, you know, to go back to the Second World War, for example, it wasn't totally unreasonable for the Canadian government to think that Japanese on the West Coast might be more sympathetic to Japan than to the British Empire. Um, and uh, similarly for the United States, that the, uh, that the, um, the Japanese population there might be more sympathetic to Japan than to the United States, to the uh, Allies. And uh, before the war, there had been a, uh, as you no doubt know, there was a powerful um, isolationist sentiment in the United States. And that had, a, 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 to some extent, an ethnic basis. Um, uh, the uh, German population in the United States was less inclined to support America's attacks on Germany than the uh, British pop origin population. And uh, that's important for the United States with its uh, obviously large role in the world. Uh, it's not very important for Canada, or at least it isn't anymore. At one time, I suppose it was uh, the um, there was as much anxiety about the increasing Italian and German and so on populations in Canada as undermining British loyalty as uh, as in the United States. But that those days have passed. Well, let's talk about Quebec in that context. Um, Quebec has articulated uh, a similar but different creed with its own interculturalism, interculturalism. How do you read it? How do you see this compare with multiculturalism? I see them as essentially the same, which is a contentious, maybe, claim. It is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, because they, 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 I mean, some people in Quebec, uh, I think, you know, your remarks about the 50th anniversary at the outset about how it would be important to the government and to the people who follow politics closely, 
uh, and to, to uh, a few partisans of the policy applies uh, as well to interculturalism in Quebec. It's important to some politicians and bureaucrats and specialists. It's, I don't think it's terribly important for the average Quebecois. Um, but yes, uh, there is a distinct name, at least, for the policies in Quebec. Charles Taylor and um, Gerard Bouchard chaired a, a big commission 10 years ago or more uh, on, uh, um, well, it was, uh, a consultative commission on, on accommodation of cultural minorities in Quebec. And they make a big point that, or they accept the, the point that was being made that, oh, Quebec doesn't embrace multiculturalism, never has right from the beginning. It has interculturalism. But they, they refused to explain what they thought interculturalism was. They just said to the government, give us a statement or a law that will define it better, and then we'll know what we're supporting. Um, and, and then a few years later, uh, Charles Taylor uh, wrote an article in which he said, there's really no difference. And um, I mean, this is, this is perhaps an example of the problem of the tension between authenticity and diplomacy. He, in, as the author of the report of the Bouchard-Taylor Commission, he was being diplomatic. As the author of an article in an obscure academic journal, he was being authentic. There's, his view, there was no difference in the policies, just a difference in the name. But surely there is a difference in the philosophy. The way I read it, interculturalism places uh, the French language, the Quebecois culture, as a solid entity in Quebec that in and of itself will is obligated to be diplomatic, to be uh, respectful of of minority cultures, but that it is fundamentally different in that the final objective of interculturalism is not a new multicultural society. I think that the opinion leaders in Quebec, nationalist or not, really do see Quebec as still fundamentally francophone. Uh, and if others can accommodate the francophone nature of Quebec, then it's perfectly acceptable to be multicultural. But that multiculturalism uh, cannot and should not be an objective or a, a, an end uh, to, to a policy. And I think in, in that regard, the Quebecois are much more European uh, than, than the rest of Canada. How do, you re how do you respond to that? Well, I think that's right. They are more European. There, there's a, a greater sense of of, uh, of a long established, deeply rooted cultural identity uh, that makes Quebec more like France or Germany than uh, than like English Canada. I think it comes down to a sense of belonging. That there is a fear that if you accommodate too much multiculturalism, the the ability of the state to create a sense of belonging will be endangered, might be minimized. 
I think it, it, it's, a, it's an enormous philosophical problem, but I think that the, the need to belong can be accommodated in various ways. And maybe it's a question of authentic, oh, as you point out, a question of authenticity versus diplomacy. Yeah, well, I think there's the same problem in, in the rest of Canada. It's just not as apparent. But there's no, there's no, I think, feeling uh, in the rest of Canada that uh, English ought to be displaced by uh, Russian or Chinese. It's, uh, it's just taken for granted. Well, of course, that we'll have a multicultural society that will be monolingual. But in Quebec, you can't say that, of course, because if you, uh, there is a real possibility that there would be, a, uh, as a result of immigration and, and multiculturalism or interculturalism or accommodation, there would be gravitation not to Russian or Chinese, but to English. I think the evidence shows that, for sure. Yeah, the evidence shows that. Montreal, I mean, Montreal, Quebec is, seems to me to be becoming more and more two territories. Montreal and the rest of the province. I want to come back to you, Don Forbes. I want to talk about uh, you for a few minutes. Uh, you've written or edited books on all sorts of aspects of Canadian thought. Uh, your works include uh, nationalism, ethnocentrism, and personality, a Canadian study, uh, a book called Ethnic Conflict, Commerce, Culture, and the Contact Hypothesis. You've written a substantive study of George Grant's thought, how has your thinking been shaped on the topic of multiculturalism over these many, many years of, of, of reflection and effort? Those studies all feed into this most recent book. Uh, when I was a graduate student in the 60s, I was studying in the United States in a department of political science that uh, emphasized the scientific approach to the study of politics and the importance of the other social sciences, especially economics and sociology and psychology, as um, sources of ideas and methods for the study of politics. And then I, I returned to Canada uh, and uh, started teaching at the University of Toronto. And... Um, discovered by through teaching that that uh, teaching young Canadians social science to understand their politics didn't make much sense that what they really needed was history and um, I started teaching a course on Canadian political thought which um, produced the, the, the you know I xeroxed a whole lot of materials that eventually became the book on Canadian political thought the anthology of Canadian political thought that I published in 1985 and, and then I, I worked on uh, the short, I was working simultaneously and later on the shortcomings of the social scientific approach to the study of politics, and specifically in the field of uh, nationalism and ethnic relations. And that produced the two books that you mentioned on uh, uh, nationalism, ethnocentrism, and personality, and the ethnic conflict book. And in the background, the whole, the whole time, was my interest in George Grant, which had started in, with uh, reading his, well, really started with before Lament for a Nation was published. First time I met him was in, uh, at a conf student conference at McMaster in 1961. And um, he was a fascinating individual and his uh, book on, uh, uh, his book, the short book, Lament for a Nation, which produced such a, a reaction among Canadians, the reading public, 
uh, was a, a fascinating book. It, I, uh, it, it was antithetical to everything I thought I believed in at the time, the good relations between Canada and the United States, the Liberal Party, uh, Lester Pearson, Pierre Trudeau. Those were, those were the flags I was flying then. And, uh, but over the years, I, 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 I uh, read everything that Grant wrote and pondered it. And eventually, uh, towards the end of his life, uh, got to know him a bit. I had kept my distance for many years. And, uh, and then eventually decided I would like to write a book about him. And uh, so his thought runs through the whole, my whole academic uh, career and what I was been writing. At first, I was in a stance of opposition, but increasingly in a stance of uh, having been persuaded by what he was saying, including Lament for a Nation, which provides the epigraph for this most recent book. How do you think George Grant would receive your book on multiculturalism in Canada? I don't know. I, honestly, that's a, a great puzzle. I don't know whether he would be offended by it or would like it. I do know that um, early on in the uh, in the eighties, when I was getting to know him a bit personally, I met with him once, and we were sitting having a beer after a, a meeting to to. Uh, talk about more serious things and he asked me what uh what i was working on and i said what i was planning to do and i said well i would like to write a book about multiculturalism i had gotten the idea in the late uh well mid 80s i guess on the sabbatical and uh, he says oh that's a good idea he said that do that he said that's that's good and i don't know what he hadn't thought i was going to do that he thought was would, would be such a good idea because i didn't explain what i had in mind and I didn't know. I didn't know until I, you know, 25 years later when I was uh, writing the book. And even then, I didn't for a long time know what I was trying to do. I think, it, yeah, as you say, it would be a very interesting puzzle. I think of Grant as always being in search of, of an authentic nation. Of, and I think that the way he perceived Canada was a country that was drifting away from its authentic roots um, or 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 certainly not supportive of the intellectual drift of Canada in the 1960s. Um, I think it was a, it was a puzzlement. It would, have, it would have been a puzzlement for him and to see Canada evolve over the last 25, 30 years of his life, I think would be uh, a great study. I mean, his reaction to the evolution of Canada from the 1960s onwards, I think uh, is, is, it would be very provocative. It would be a, a telling story. Yes, I agree. Thank you very much, Donald Forbes. It's a pleasure talking to you about your book, uh, Multiculturalism in Canada, Constructing a Model Multiculture with Multicultural Values, published by Paul Grave Macmillan. Thank you. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does including its publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. 
Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on September 11, 2020, by our ingenious producer, Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time.